All right, all right. Welcome to the Cavish Ships Podcast, where we try and cut through the fog of the murk, shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. The Cavish Ships Podcast is sponsored by GE Marine, a GE aerospace company offering unparalleled power and propulsion for ships from the biggest combatants to the smallest, fastest patrol boats. GE's propulsion solutions are ready for the next generation of sea power. Learn more at geaerospace.com slash marine. And by HII. HII is the designer and operator of the U.S. Navy's live virtual constructive training enterprise, the largest LVC enterprise in the U.S. Department of Defense. HII delivering hard stuff done right. Coming up. Lockheed Martin is matching the Patriot Advanced Capability 3-missile interceptor with its Aegis Weapon System Spy-1 radar, a potentially significant advance in anti-missile defense. We'll talk about that and more with two of Lockheed's top missile and fire control executives. But first, a look at this week's Naval News. A U.S. Marine Corps MV-22B Osprey tilt-rotor aircraft crashed August 27th on Melville Island off northern Australia, killing three Marines and injuring 20 others. Following the deaths on August 17th of a Lance Corporal during live fire exercises in California, and on August 24th of a pilot in the crash of an F-A-18D Hornet strike fighter, Acting Marine Commandant General Eric Smith on August 29th ordered a core-wide safety review down to the unit level. The Osprey that crashed was from the 3rd Battalion, 1st Marine Regiment Reinforced, assigned to the Marine Rotational Force Darwin in Australia. The upcoming NATO exercise, Northern Coasts in the Baltic Sea, is being promoted as a warning to Russia. Exercise Commander German Vice Admiral Jan Christian Koch told reporters in Berlin on August 31st, quote, We are sending a clear message of vigilance to Russia, not on our watch, end quote, and while NATO exercises regularly practice defensive tactics, offense will be a feature of the exercise, Cox said, declaring that credible deterrence must include the ability to attack. The two-week exercise to begin September 9th will include some 30 ships and 3,000 service members will be led by the German Navy from its newly operational maritime headquarters at Rostock. The first new Type 054B class frigate for the Chinese People's Liberation Army Navy, was launched August 26th at the Hudong Zhanghua shipyard near Shanghai. The ships appear to be much enlarged versions of the previous 4,000-ton Type 054A Zhangkai II class, of which 30 ships are in service. The newer Type 054Bs appear to displace more than 6,000 tons and are more heavily armed. It is not yet clear how many Type 054Bs China plans to build. Vice Admiral William Galinas relinquished his command of Naval Sea Systems Command on September 1st and is headed to retirement. Rear Admiral Tom Anderson, formerly the Program Executive Officer for Ships, assumed the role of Acting NAVSEA Commander. Rear Admiral James Downey has been nominated for a third star and to become the next commander of NAVSEA, but along with about 100 other senior Navy officers and more than 300 senior officers across the Pentagon, cannot be confirmed while Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville continues his blanket hold on top Defense Department nominations. Huntington Ingalls Industries on August 25th 
received a $155 million contract award to upgrade the destroyer USS Zumwalt, DDG-1000, to enable the ship to field the hypersonic conventional prompt strike missile. Zumwalt arrived at HII's Ingalls shipyard in Mississippi on August 19th and will be the first of three ships in her class to undergo the upgrade, expected to be completed in 2025. Finally, cruiser USS Lake Champlain, CG-57, held her decommissioning ceremony September 1st at San Diego. She completed her last full deployment in February 2022. Commissioned on August 12, 1988, the Champ served for 35 years. And that's a look at just some of this week's naval news. All right. Well, Lockheed Martin, of course, is the nation's largest defense contractor, a supplier to all the major military services. But today we're going to focus on the naval side. And with us to talk about some of the naval programs is Joe DiPietro, Vice President, General Manager of Multi-Domain Combat Solutions, and Tom Coltman, Vice President, Naval Systems and Lockheed Martin Missiles and Fire Control, who was also a retired Vice Admiral who commanded U.S. Naval Surface Forces. Welcome to the podcast, Mr. DiPietro and Mr. Coltman. Thanks for having us, Chris. All right, let's, let's dive into missiles. Let's start with missiles. So in July, for the first time, Lockheed Martin's Patriot Advanced Capability 3, PAC-3, version of the, this is a version of the Patriot Missile Defense System. The interceptor successfully communicated with a, with a SPY-1 radar, which is a key component of the Aegis weapon system. PAC-3 is a missile that's it's been around, it's well-known, but it's not well-known for its use in naval uh, in the naval arena. Can you talk to us about those developments and where you want to go with this? Sure. So uh, under internal research and development funds, uh, Lockheed Martin Missiles of Fire Control and, and Rotary Emission Systems have embarked on a multi-year um, campaign to uh, modify the PAC-3 MSE missile so that it's compatible with the Aegis Combat System. That's integration of an existing, highly, very, very capable Army programmer record full rate production missile. Um, the S-band radar test that we did in July up at uh, Morristown at CSEDS was uh, one of the one of the major milestones that we had to do because the the Aegis Combat Systems uses the S-band radar, the Spy One or the Spy Six to communicate with missiles that it launches to give them you know direction where to go and where the targets are. And the uh, Patriot missile does not have that capability because it operates with uh, THAAD and Patriot radars, which operate in different bands. So we had to do a, a proof of concept that the radio that we have modified for the Patriot could in fact talk with the SPY-1D radar up at CSEDS, and it did. So where, where is this going? It's not just an integration with a combat system. Where, what's, the, what's the object? Well, the, the objective is to uh, solve a, a capacity and capability problem that the United States Navy has in integrated air and missile defense. The Patriot behaves in a different manner than the current missiles that the Navy has. It's a highly maneuverable, highly effective missile. It's under full rate production, 500 a year right now, moving up to 550. And with the pretty modest modifications to the missile and to its canister, uh, we can integrate it and, and give the Navy a, a, a much needed boost in their uh, capacity and their, and their capability at sea to defend the fleet. So I believe the Army is the, the, the primary user of that missile. Is that right? Yeah, the United States mm -hmm. Army is is the program, but there's there's a uh, more than a dozen countries that also use the Pac-3, the Patriot system, um, and it, uh, either the CRI missile, which is an earlier version, 
of the PAC-3 MSE or the PAC-3 MSE or, or a combination of both of them. There's a couple of countries that have both CRIs and MSEs. So in, in naval use, what's the launch system? Launch launch platform? Is it, a, is it coming out of a Mark 41 vertical launch system? Uh, what's, the, what's the base here? Yeah, we, we're envisioning a Mark 41 vertical launch system. Yep. E- existing Mark 41s? Yes. We've been working on that for a while, Chris. We did fit checks, et cetera, back in the day. Uh, you know, as we look at things across the board, we we see our ability to create capability through integration of systems at Lockheed Martin Fields today. So we did that to do the fit check. We looked at some different things on how to package that missile. Um, and so now it's really about moving into the next phase of what we're looking at under investment, which is to, you know, put it in the canister, go through the required testing to certify. Uh, that system inside that canister to be launched from Mark 41. And, you know, Mark 41's proven to be this modular adaptable platform since its inception, right? Going from the tactical to the strike one launchers that we have today and our ability to quad pack smaller missiles, single cell other ones, et cetera. So that, that program's been evolving over time. And then, you know, this effort with MFC uh, in partnership is really to advance that capability uh, and integrate it into the combat system. Do you also see it being able to talk to land-based uh, Patriot batteries as well? Like, is there a pass-off in terms of like when you think of layered defense or is it, would it just be in an at-sea c- scenario? No, it would maintain the, okay. it, it was just adding the S-band. So it would maintain all of its capabilities that it currently has with the Army plus adding S-band. And, and we have efforts going on across the board, uh, both with both with uh, THAAD and with uh, PAC-3 to do Aegis integration. And it's it's not limited to sea-based platforms. Um, as we look at it from a layered defense perspective, as we talk about IAMD, as we talk about you know uh, layered homeland defense, that capability would be key as we compare ships, other sensors, land-based batteries, sea-based batteries into a multi-domain layer defense solution from an IMD perspective. So we see it there. That's why while we continue to obviously go through things that are creating the next layers of technology, again, there's so much capability that can be created by integrating some of these great platforms out there and making them more interoperable than they already are today uh, by doing some of these efforts. So that's been a real big focus of the partnership between our rotary mission systems where I work and, and Tom's unit missiles and fire control as we look at IMD at large. Yeah, I mean, that that's kind of the cool part as you look at the headlines today. I mean, you, you can see just, I mean, it becomes evident how, even for folks that are not, um, you, you know, navalists at heart. I mean, in terms of what this does for a potential, you know, protection of Japan, protection of South Korea, uh, Guam defense, you mentioned homeland defense. I mean, you, you know, thinking about what we do in Europe. I mean, th- this is, I-, I was actually surprised that it has taken this long for um, Aegis to be linked to uh, to Patriot. Um, what's the timeline in terms of when we could see these systems, you know, actually being integrated and, and this ha- actually happening in a real world scenario? Well, the, Na- the Navy has uh, asked us to provide them with an executable, executable timeline, which we have done, and it's dependent upon the amount of funding that the Navy has. So that's really the Navy's question and answer on that particular, on, on what, they, what they envision. But it, it, it can be done much more quickly than the development of a brand new missile, I'll tell you that, way, way quicker. I mean, the, a new missile, if, you wanted to, if the Navy wanted to develop a new START missile, that had the capability of a PAC-3 MSE, you're, you're probably talking 10 years and a billion plus dollars in RTD&E before you get IOC. So what would it take if you have a DDG today just to 
base nine Aegis DDG, what have you got to do to give that capability, the PAC-3 capability to that ship? Well, you know, the goodness is, is uh, with all the, with all the live firing, with all the data that MFC has, right, it's just an, it's, it's an instant of two things. It's the physical integration with Mark 41 that we talked about and the certification through that process, right, with the weapon systems explosive safety review board in order to be able to canisterize and launch that missile from a Mark 41. Key piece you saw with the being able to do the missile comps, which we've been able to prove out now with the S-band radar and the tri-band RF receiver on, on the uh, on the unit, radio on the unit. And then lastly is, is pulling that in now with all the data we have from the missile in order to allow us to do that threat evaluation of weapon assignment performance, right? We see where we can where we do that. And now in our environments that we have, whether you're talking about running them through on our virtual Aegis weapon system, et cetera, we can run scenario after scenario after scenario where we see the utility of PAC-3 and then actually have the machine learn and then feedback when the, that threat evaluation of weapons assignment is the best solution in that set. And also give flexibility to the warfighter too, where if they want to save a different missile for a high-end mission where PAC-3 is applicable, um, they, can use, they, can, they can default to that weapon as well. So that, that's really what we're doing right now uh, under our IRAD investments that Tom mentioned in the front end is getting everything in this in this place to be able to you know work with our navy customer and talk about how do we move from these integration events that you're seeing us do on land you know we also did with the Aegis Ashore a couple now almost a couple of years ago a year and a half ago right the integration of pack 3 using some of its its launcher etc with Aegis so we know we can close the fire control loop on this thing we're going to do all that we can to get it ready to support uh, the Navy to be able to move out um, to look at what we can do from a flight test perspective in the in in the near term. Joe, you you kind of mentioned it, but but I I, I don't I want to make sure that the audience picks up on it because maybe not everyone is as familiar. Currently, the Navy you, you know it would fire kind of the high end SM six, some variant of that. I mean that right? I mean that's that's a pretty expensive, pretty high end um, interceptor to hit. The, the lower end targets that, you know, our, our ships may have to deal with, this provides a lot more flexibility, right? I mean, it's, it's not only layered defense, but it's, um, it, it, it gives you just a, a lower end um, option when engaging these, right? I mean, am I missing something there? How would you explain it better? I, I think, I think Tom hit the nail on the head when we started, right? It does. It, it, it creates a capacity and it shows that there's this kind of overlap space where we, we see this missile uh, very effective against certain threats and it will allow you to reserve that capacity for some of the other missions to the, to the missiles that are loaded out. So I think it gives the warfighter a lot of flexibility is what we're trying to achieve here um, as part of that layer defense solution. So I think that that's the truth in, in what we're doing here as part of the effort. And it's really important because it is a capacity and a capability all in one. So in uh, let's, let's talk about the launch system. So the Mark 41 vertical launch system, which is a very well-known, almost ubiquitous launch system in, in various configurations on warships around the world, all the, a, lot, a lot of uh, uh, partners and allies, the United States Navy and just about every uh, US Navy surface combatant. Um, I was up uh, at see your facility in Morristown, New Jersey um, a few weeks ago where you've moved vertical launch system production up there from, uh, from Middle River, Maryland, just outside of Baltimore. Um, that's, a, that's a new operation up there. You seem to be putting out an awful lot of units. 
But you know there are varieties of, of the Mark 41. You, you spoke about tactical length missile cells. You talked about strike length missile cells. Um, there's there's a distinction there which maybe not everybody's familiar with. You also spoke about growth VLS, um, which I believe includes conventional prompt strike hypersonic missiles. Um, so can you can you just talk about the state of the Mark 41 production and uh, what you're providing for? Yeah, obviously the the key element uh, that we provide across uh, supports you know not only our DDGs but our allied partners with some of their different configurations, whether frigates or DDGs in the strike length Mark 41 VLS, and that's where we're at production rates. You know, building five to six eight cell modules a month of that capability as part of our new factory up in Morristown, New Jersey. Um, in, in there, right? We knew we saw the capacity uh, coming off of you know our Aegis production line, you know, and the kind of the sunsetting of Spy One, the ramp up of solid state radars, which had different requirements in our facility. Really bringing those systems together so we could do that integration. Um, so you know that is the work I'll call it the workhorse of the different fleets is that that Strike One Mark Forty One VLS. Obviously, some smaller ships uh, use more of the tactical for their you know kind of local air defense. Uh, mission sets that they have, but the predominant fielded uh, one is obviously in the strike area. The other part of that you mentioned in the growth of VLS was the opportunity space as we looked at it to see uh, as the requirements for the what was originally the next generation large surface combatant and then now uh, what is known as DDGX. It talked about a, mark, a, a vertical launching system capable of conventional prompt strike. We really assessed the market space of launch, of missiles with partners, uh, you know, at MFC space, looking at the different things that are going on across the other aerospace defense companies, really saw that as a pacing missile. So under an IRAD investment this year, we are constructing a growth VLS that has uh, a depth and uh, uses a, you know, four cell configuration with a single exhaust. This is all learning from what we did for our single cell launcher and what we did for the Army mid-range capability program. Um, that we can scale that. And what that does is allow us to have the capacity to either have larger diameter missiles in there or be able to quad pack the traditional missiles that would have gone into a traditional VLS. So ultimately in the space where you had eight cells of VLS in the past, now you're talking about you could have up to 16 missiles of your standard missiles that we fire today, or potentially four of a larger diameter, uh, longer range type weapon. So that was uh, an effort that we've kind of embarked on and uh, certainly something that we're working on this year in order to complete kind of that prototype growth VLS module. It sounds like an idea that it riffs off the Virginia payload module that's installed into Virginia class uh, submarines, which is a, lar a large diameter tube. But you, you, as you said, you quad pack, put four missiles into that tube, it's not just one. Is that, is that, is, is that taking any of that technology or is it just a separate development? Um, it, it's separate development for us because we're really leveraging the heritage of Mark 41 in this case, right? What we've been able to do over the years is, um, you know, scale our electronic solution. Uh, we certainly have evolved in our software development for the launcher and how it can talk not only to the Aegis combat system, but to other combat systems from an international customer perspective. So we're really leveraging that in order to be able to create this scalable solution. We looked at it very hard. Chris, you and I talked years ago about single cell launchers and how we could use those on smaller ships like a littoral combat ship if we change its mission set. And because we developed that kind of scalable electronics and scalable structure, we've been able to go bigger and smaller if we need to, where we repackaged into containers, et cetera, like mid-range capability for that scale for Mark 41 VLS. So 
that investment has paid dividends in building that single cell architecture and leveraging all that. And now we're able to scale it as a result. So I think you, we've also talked about you developing, I think, a smaller um, ESSM, Evolved Sea Sparrow Missile Launcher, uh, which is a self-defense missile for the most part. Um, and, I, and I think you're, are, are you looking for that, something like that to also use on, on unmanned surface vessels? Um, you know, we not necessarily a, a, a target uh, ship class. This obviously, you know, as we work as the Navy comes through con ops on unmanned vessels, obviously there's some scalability, whether it's a Mark 41, a containerized launcher potentially, or even a smaller scale. What we started to work with as we went around the international market space was uh, the different, uh, I'll call them self-defense missiles. So we have an, what we call an extensible launching system that allows us to have uh, different different uh, units that could be put in there. It can go from a three cell unit to a larger uh, capacity of uh, cells. Um, and it's part of our solution set with the Canadian surface combatant, but it will be actually launching the C-Scepter missile um, as part of it. So we've been able to integrate different capabilities onto that in partnership with companies like MBDA as well to have some different scale. Again, as you target different ships and sizes, you know, that scalability, uh, we're really working on both sides, the launcher set. And then as we continue to evolve what we're doing in the in our computer program development, we're trying to also build from a common library to go from self-defense all the way to high-end IMD and multi-domain solutions. So we're, we're trying to build that scalability in as we look at our future landscape. Okay, let's, let's move on to radars. Um, SPY-1D, which is the great big uh, phased array radar that is everybody has seen on uh, cruisers and destroyers, every single cruiser and destroyer in the U.S. fleet. You also have a number of international partners. Production for the U.S. Navy is finally coming to an end with the end of the flight to a early bird class. The flight threes, of course, are going to a spy six uh, radar produced by Raytheon or RTX, which is, which is now combined with Lockheed's Aegis combat system. But the 1D is still going to be out there. You still have foreign customers. Uh, the Navy still has dozens and dozens and dozens of ships with 1Ds that are going to need, need, need support. Um, but you also have a number of foreign customers uh, among them, you know, Korea, Japan, Spain, Norway, Australia. Um, you've been doing an awful lot of traveling lately uh, around the globe. Uh, I think going to some of these partners and seeing how the progress the program is going. Can you talk about SPY 1D right now? Absolutely. Um, you know, this is really something that we're partnering on, not only with the U.S. Navy, but with the allied customer, you know, allied navies and customers as well, as you mentioned, right, to the make sure that we have the full encompassing, you know, uh, scale and signal in order to keep that radar, you know, supported and then ultimately relevant what we're looking at as we look at signal processing and some of that opportunity space as, as we continue to support that radar. So it's very important when you look at it, you look how we're delivering. You know, the U.S. Navy finished a couple of years ago with uh, some of the work that we've done for Korea, that we've been able to extend that production line and just wrapped up the final unit to go through our production test center uh, there. But you're talking about radars that are going to be out in the fleet until the 2050 slash 2060 timeframe, right? As you look through when midlife upgrades could potentially happen, how many ships would get upgraded across those platforms and portfolios, et cetera. So the first partnership in, with the Navy is, uh, you know, with the Navy's is, okay, how are we going to maintain that supportability for that radar now that the production line is shut down? And what's that demand signal look like uh, across the different allies in order to make sure that we've got that ace of O as high as possible for that radar? And then the other thing we're obviously looking at is, is as you look at, you know, 
what the, the diminishing material resources, et cetera, what's the right things that we could do to insert um, some, you know, improve improvements slash, you know, technology insertion upgrades in there that allow us also to continue to look at, um, you know, the performance of the radar and the relevance of the radar as we look at the evolving threat. Um, on the other side of that, we've also been, get, you know, continue to work always to get data as ships deploy and that, and then feed that data back through the system so that we can learn also from a software perspective, how to continue to do that. As you know, baseline nine now moves to being able to do an integrated air and missile defense capability, even with the legacy radar. So we, we need to stay on top of that game uh, from all those, from a hardware and a software perspective in order to make sure that stays relevant to the fight. So the partnership is strong right now, you know, the supported command coming in from, uh, you know, Sir four and the fleet, with support from ASNRDA, from IWS, and from Lockheed Martin and the other industry partners that have been involved in the SPY-1 for many years to make sure that we can keep that radar relevant to the fight as it's been for all these years. Well, let's, um, let's shift gears to uh, LCS. Um, the, the Navy will commission uh, the Marinette uh, LCS-25 um, in mid-September, and then you've got um, three other variants that are left uh, being built uh, by Fink and Terry Marinette Marine. And then you're also the lead on the Saudi ships that are the multi-mission ships that, uh, for Saudi Arabia. Can you give an update on the LCS program, not just on the build, but on support that you're providing and, you know, what maybe what technology you, you're you're looking at to take into uh, future uh, work that you might do for the Navy, whether it's unmanned or uh, in, in other areas? Yeah, you know, I, I'll, I'll speak at a high level, you know, the the small combatants and ship systems market in our rotary mission systems is the lead uh, from a littoral combat ship perspective. We've certainly, you know, looked over the years, obviously, you know, we've got, as you mentioned, 25, 27, 29, and 31, uh, you know, with 25 in its path to get commissioned and the other ships kind of finishing their production, followed by the multi-mission surface combatant for the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, where we just did the keel laying for ship three up in Marinette uh, just this uh, past month. So a lot of activity, you know, still going on there as we close out the program. I think, you know, from a production perspective, but to your point, um, you know, we've been looking at scalable capability, um, you know, from a lethality and survivability for some time now relevant to that ship. We've certainly been able to evolve with some of the things that we've been working for integration uh, perspective. And we do have efforts that we work uh, as well with some of the work we've been doing on MUSV and LUSV from a combat system perspective. So I think, you know, there's a lot of utility in that platform. We always talk about it, but, you know, when you remember that 40% of that space is empty and able to take on uh, different canisters, modules, computing capacity, et cetera, it really becomes about what, what do you want the Swiss army knife that it could be to be. Um, so we'll continue to partner as, uh, you know, as they get more runtime and learn more with what's out there from a mission package and what that space is to, to work that. We've got a long run to your point as we continue to support the ships, complete that production and then follow on production. You're seeing something that's got, you know, easily, uh, you know, a couple more years through the production phase and then into that post-delivery of that new construction period uh, to support it. So littoral combat ship still has a lot of work to go. I think, you know, one of the things we continue to support is the mission has evolved over the years. Um, the manning concept has evolved over the years and how do we continue to support and think outside the box, whether that's anything from the ability to put, you know, uh, module launching sets on there to other capacities and capability as we, we continue to look at that 
the ships and how they can utilize it in the best manner forward. So we're, we're proud to be partnered on that kind of stuff, continuing to look at that lethality and survivability, uh, you know, capability upgrade for those platforms. I think a lot of people don't maybe not think about just because the U.S. Navy is decommissioning some of these ships um, with an awful lot of service life left in them. Um, a lot of they they haven't announced it, but they're likely to go up for foreign military sale FMS. And there are reportedly uh, several customers who are pretty eager to grab these boats. Um, that's also going to provide conversion work. People who want upgrades, changes, modifications to whatever those. Well, that's that's a, that's that's another opportunity that's not going to go away. Yeah, I mean, you know, when we look at across the board, I think one of the things that um, you know maybe sometimes doesn't re- we don't normally translate to. We think about littoral combat ship and and some of the work that we've done there, but really from a ship integration perspective, you know, Lockheed Martin's been leading that effort since the Martin Marietta days, et cetera. I mean, over sixty spaces on a DDG are designed by Lockheed Martin. Right, and they're merged into the model with the shipbuilder in order to create those capabilities. Whether we're talking flight two or flight three, um, and all the Aegis modernization packages that come through as we lay out the combat systems uh, in order to have them be most effective uh, in their layout, how to lay out the computing suites, uh, et cetera, all gets done by us, Chris. So that that group, you know, is strong. Uh, from there, we leveraged that and kind of took it to a platform level with some of the HM&E on on an LCS. But, you know, we really see that as a a key capability that we have um, and we see the Navy moving towards that. You know, they have worked out now to do uh, kind of the big deck amphib and carrier ship integration and test. And they're looking for a partner in that arena right uh, from that perspective. And we see that as a a key competency that we have, you know, that sometimes you think Lockheed Martin, you think radars, you think Aegis, you think missile launchers and missiles. But that integration effort and how we do that seamlessly kind of agnostic to shipbuilder, agnostic to model type, et cetera, and able to fold that in all around the world. We do it with Japan. You mentioned that we do it with Spain. We do it with Canada now, you know, Korea, Norway, you name it. We've done those kind of efforts across the board and we continue to evolve that capability as we do all our model-based systems engineering, how we're shifting the way we can transfer products and drawings uh, today faster than we ever did before. So I think you're right there. That's a ripe space uh, for us. We certainly know that platform very well. We've also participated with the Navy and studying the other platform uh, from an LCS perspective and the ability to commonize combat systems capability across them. So I think we are in a position ready to support uh, and continue to evolve that capability to have, whether it be on those littoral combat ships that you mentioned, or as we look at the future state to continue to do that integration and modernization uh, across you know, the different components uh, of Aegis-based ships that are around the world. We've been pretty uh, program-focused. I mean, this has been a great conversation. We've covered a lot. Um, Before we wrap this up, I'd be interested if, you know, in both of your opinions, there's been a lot, um, you know, maybe zooming out a little bit, uh, there's been a lot of discussion about pace, whether it's pace of production uh, with missiles, whether it's pace of technology um, in missiles and in radar, um, I, just your broad thoughts on, you know, where we are from your perspective of how can we move faster? Um, is the criticism of the industry and government fair? J- just it, as we look at the growing threat set, whether it's in Ukraine, whether it's out in Indo-PACOM, um, how, how are we doing pace-wise? And do you feel like you're where you need to be and getting what you need from the customer and from the Congress uh, in, in terms of meeting the, the threat 
and and meeting the needs of of the customer. Admiral, I'll ask you first. You've seen it from both sides, and I, this isn't a gotcha. Yeah. I mean, I just just your yeah. sense on pace. So I I think the the industry government team understands that there's some some bottlenecks that are that are caused by bureaucracy, by supply chain, by regulations and rules, and, and we're working hard to to get them to get through them and work through them. But but some stuff's not you know the defense acquisition regulations and federal acquisition regulations. Uh, and weapon safety and some of that stuff, it's, there's, there's not a lot of shortcuts for it. Um, and, and there's a recognition that the supply chain is somewhat fragile. I think the COVID uh, epi- pandemic proved that out across the board, not just in, not just in defense and aerospace. So um, I, I, think, I think there's a lot of work going on. I, I think we'll see some progress in it. I mean, it is, it, there's definitely a recognition on both sides that uh, improvements could be made. Tom, you hit it head on, you know, and, and haven't been on the acquisition side too for 20 years uh, uh, on the Navy side. Um, you know, I think we understand that we can go faster, right? And I think we're doing things um, to try to accomplish that. It, it is a culture shift, right? Uh, we've, we've kind of aligned on what we're going through from a process perspective, but I think we're doing all the right things to go faster. And we really are trying to partner, uh, you know, with, with the Navy, uh, with the Army, with other folks, you're seeing different adaptations of that when we do some of these go fast programs with organizations like RICTO, um, et cetera, right? That allow us to get to a capability and a demonstration pretty quick. Um, we, we look to kind of embody that and transform it as we do some of these other activities across the board. Um, the, Tom hit on a really important one, and we're, we are partnered. You know, we're challenging each other on certifications and OQE and and you know that there's so many things we could do now with uh, the amount of test runs we could run through the simulations, the data that we can take from doing things differently, and how do we go really approach that? Because you know the challenges I've mentioned uh, a couple of times, and I think some different conversations with folk, slinging code is not the problem. We can generate millions of lines of code like it's going out of style. It's getting through the process of all the scenarios, the testing, the data collection, the reviews, the, the mission assessments, the live firing events, the all the et cetera that is required in order to say, and now we can field it. So that's the thing we're trying to work on is how do we accelerate that? How do we pull things in earlier? You know, and we've heard that conversation before, but we're being, I, I think, you know, we're leaning in and trying to show some of the things we're doing from a digital technology perspective, some of the things we think that we can do that to really get to what we should be doing in these certification discussions, which is creating a bounded statement of risk that everyone can understand and then move forward. That is probably the most important thing that we could help with to go faster along with, you know, hiring the brilliant engineers and getting the right machines and all the other things we're doing real time and digital transformation, the buzzword that everyone talks about, but I'm seeing it and how we're setting up our software factory, how we're doing architectures, how we're trying to deliver engineering designs and say, we're not going to walk the walls anymore. We're going to do it live in the model, and we're going to comment right here and move on and not prepare two months of wall walks to go get through a design review, right? This is the stuff we're, we're pushing for, and we're seeing the customer respond to it because they acknowledge they have to move faster, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of work to go do to, uh, to flesh that out. Well, this has been a great conversation. I, I really appreciate the, the last two comments in particular because, I mean, this whole discussion of pace has become a little bit bumper sticker-ish, right? And so sometimes we miss all the things that go into 
you know, that, that large scale equation and uh, your, both of your perspectives on that, as well as on all the other things that you talked about has been very helpful. We've been talking to Joe DiPietro and Tom Copeman from Lockheed Martin. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Uh, we hope you'll come back and uh, share more of, of what you're doing. Thanks, Chris. Yeah. Chris, Chris and Chris. Yes. I appreciate the time. And we look forward to giving you another update soon on uh, all the work we're doing on that PAC3 integration. So, Well, that does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vaga Moradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. The Cavaships podcast is sponsored by GE Marine, a GE aerospace company offering unparalleled power and propulsion for ships from the biggest combatants to the smallest, fastest patrol boats. GE's propulsion solutions are ready for the next generation of sea power. Learn more at geaerospace.com marine and by HII. HII is one of the largest artificial intelligence and machine learning federal contractors to the U.S. government. HII, delivering hard stuff done right. Be sure to follow us at Cavish Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavis. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>